what we're going to be doing today, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is, um, well, we started last week and we'll carry on this week and then next week is we're spending a little bit of time talking about who we are as a church and some of, I guess you could call it our kind of, our, our mission, our vision, what we want to, the sort of church we're trying to build here in the city. Uh, so normally, we would, uh, when we're working through, uh, we would normally work through a book of the Bible together week by week, work through some, a few verses, and we're just taking a couple of weeks where we're still preaching from the Bible, but rather than working through a particular bit of the Bible, we're just spending a little bit of time, as I said, just talking about who we are and uh, here we go. Let me. So we're working through this, this kind of statement that if you pick up one of these cards that's at the back, it just says about Liberty Church, and this, it says this on the back. It says, we're a community of Amsterdamers from multiple different nations, backgrounds, ages, and stages of life. And as a community, our desire is to love God. And that love compels us to love others and to love our city. Amsterdam is a city of diversity and creativity, of passion and freedom. However, we believe that the love of Jesus can transform Amsterdam into something greater than it is. In a city set on finding liberty, we believe that true liberty comes in following Jesus, and this is life, life to the full. When true love captures us, our desires change, our habits die, our priorities are reset, and our dreams are reimagined. We no longer want to live for ourselves, something greater is before us. Uh, last week we were talking about Jesus, the church, and worship, and this week we're going to talk about Jesus, the church, and the city. And uh, in particular, we're going to look at this verse uh, from Matthew 5, where it says, this is Jesus talking to us, where he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this together. Jesus, we thank you that, as it says in John 8, you are the light of the world. And you're not contradicting yourself here, but you're saying that through us, your people, the wonderful light and glory of Jesus Christ is supposed to spread and shine out to the nations of this world. And that's our heart, that's our passion, that we want your light to shine into our lives, to lift us out of darkness, and we want that same light to shine out into the places you put us. We want our lives to be for your glory, for the worship of you alone, and we know that all of that is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We need you, God. Even the very act of worshiping you, we need you for that. So we pray right now that you would come and fill us again with your power. Open our hearts, open our eyes, our minds to see you again, we pray. Amen. Amen. About um, 700 years ago, in uh, I think the, the year 1345, was a key moment in the history of our city, of Amsterdam, where we live. Up until then, it had been pretty much a small 
fishing village. Um, you know, I mean, most of the city really is, we're supposed to be underwater, it's kind of just a swamp. So a few people were huddled around just trying to make life work, going out into the sea to catch some fish. Um, and then something quite remarkable happened, which is known as the miracle of Amsterdam, where a man who was dying, a nun came to him and took communion with him. And he took uh, what Catholics would call the Eucharist, a small piece of bread, a bit like a, looked like a kind of small wafer. And he took it and he took the communion. And then he was ill and he threw up the communion. Um, and what the nun did was he, she took his vomit and she took it and she threw it in the fire. And the fire burned up all of the vomit, but not the pieces of bread, so the story goes. So they, the, they got excited about this piece of bread and proclaimed it as a miracle. They put this small piece of bread into a church and the church burnt down twice and both times the piece of bread remained. And Amsterdam, all of a sudden, from going from this small fishing village, this story about what happened spread all over Europe and it became this kind of place that people would come to on, on pilgrimage they would come to find their healing because it was supposed to be this place of miracles. People from all over Europe would, would, would come here and that's one of the reasons that Amsterdam has become what it is today, such a center, such a, uh, a, an important city in, in Europe and indeed all over the world. Uh, and within one, one century of this miracle taking place, there were 19 different monasteries all spread around the city a third of all the buildings in the city were, were monastic. They're either a church or a monastery. Um, and that's kind of what happened within, within the city. And I guess maybe you're thinking whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're not a believer in Jesus. To our modern ears, that story may sound kind of laughable, bizarre. Uh, sounds like kind of fake news from another age from another even galaxy that something like that could, could happen. Um, we don't believe in those sort of things anymore because our modern age in this city is supposed to be a city of, of disenchantment. Disenchantment, as in the spell has been lifted. All those silly things that we used to believe hundreds of years ago is now broken because of the enlightenment, because we're enlightened people, because we can reason, understand, and because we can think. All those things that oppressed us, the evil institution of the church which told us what to do, we've got rid of that, we don't care about that anymore, we're a disenchanted people. We don't believe in witches or evil spirits, any sort of higher being or miracles. We've had the kind of the mask, the curtain pull back, and we can now see the world for what, for what it really is. And that's, for many people, that's what it means to be, to be secular. People talk about Amsterdam as being a secular city. Secular means without God. A city, a society, a nation, a people who, who are, are now without God. God is dead, the idea of God, whatever that means, is gone, is past, we're now secular. We're enlightened, we're disenchanted. There was a philosopher called Max Weber, who was a German philosopher, died about 100 years ago, and that's how he described secularization, a society becoming secular, a, a people, a city, learning to live without God. 
He called it this disenchantment of the world. We're no longer enchanted. We no longer believe in miracles and wonders and signs and gods and mythical beings. We're reasonable and we're, we're sane. We're disenchanted. But I came across this fascinating quote recently by a, a professor from the University of Utrecht, Peter van der Veer. He said, if secularization implies what Max Weber called disenchantment, then we are far from disenchanted today. So I don't know if this guy is a Christian or not. I don't think he is. But what he's arguing is that we're not really disenchanted. He went on to say, rather this enchantment has simply migrated into the market, into money, both of which are supercharged with magical and ritual qualities. What he's saying is we're still enchanted. We were talking about this a little bit last week. We're still under the spell. It's just the thing that's got us under this spell has now changed. So he said once we had these Gothic cathedrals, but now our temples are the grandiose towers and hushed interiors of the international banks and financial institutions. The market religions, theologians, the economists, they argue their conflicting theories about how and why things go wrong, the fall and sin, and what we do to achieve social and individual prosperity, or salvation, is what he said. So maybe that might be a bit complicated, but what he's saying is that we're just as enchanted as we've always been, but we just worship different things now. But one of the driving forces in our society, as Rich was talking about just a moment ago, is this idol of money, that we do what it says and we'll give anything for it. And if suddenly that, that idol begins to crumble, it begins to let us down, we panic. Anxiety kicks in, fear kicks in. How are we gonna pay the mortgage? How are we gonna pay the bills? What's life gonna look like? And you all know that, that feeling of, goodness, how's this gonna work out? And that's because the idol is beginning to crumble, it's letting us down. But that's just one example. There are so many different ways across all of our society where you can see all sorts of, I guess, religious activity taking place. We wouldn't call it that, but it's just other enchantments, other spells, other religions working out. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. It's true. In every way, in all sorts of different ways across all of our society, people are searching for something, putting their trust in something. And sometimes even the most sinful, horrible acts, you think, how could that be in any way looking for God? But that's the, the impulse, the desire within us that drives us, this endless desire that will attach itself to something. We've got to put a point it somewhere and it will find something to attach itself to. And everywhere you look, this city that we live in is deeply, deeply enchanted religious in so many different ways, worshipful, 
idolatrous. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is just the preacher, that guy on the stage who just kind of wants to be smug <laughs> and say to all, all you, all you, all you unchristians, you heathens, you unbelievers, oh, look, you're just the same as us. I'm not trying to be smug with you. I'm just trying to wake us up because we need to hear this, right? We need to be reminded all the time. Who, who are we actually worshiping? We're going to worship something, so what's it going to be? What's the choice going to be? And also, I not just want to wake you up. I want to call you into something that Jesus has something better to offer. That something that's life-giving, that's fulfilling, that's satisfying, that you can give your life for, and it won't let you down. Because any idea of this sort of secular city is actually impossible. There's no such thing as a secular city. There's no such thing as being secular yourself without God. It just depends what God you choose. Are you going to choose the God of the Bible, the Christian God who we've been worshipping this morning, or will you choose something else? See, because the worst thing is, is that all these different enchantments, these different idols, they, they, they offer you so much, but actually give you so little. It says in Psalm 115, he's talking about idolatry. Those who make them, who create idols, become like them, and so do all who trust in them. That's what happens. The, the idol, the thing, it offers us freedom and liberty, but in the end it just brings us down to its own level. So if you're going to trust in money, and we all do that all the time, don't we? We think, if I just get that amount, life is going to look great. If I could just get a pay rise, if I could just get that new job that's got for me this amount, if I can just get here or there, all of a sudden life will be great. And then you get there, and then all of a sudden you, you then have to pursue the next goal because it doesn't work, and then you have to pursue the next goal, the next thing. And all the time, what the idol is doing, it's drawing you down to its level. It's robbing your heart. It's dominating you. It's destroying you, often in very sub subversive ways that you don't notice until it's, until it's too late. And that's, that's the city that we, that we live in. Because sometimes we can feel like if you're a Christian here, and you think, like, I want people around me to know about Jesus, I want their lives to be changed and transformed by him, and it can feel so hard, because we feel like, oh, these, these secular people who've rejected God, how on earth are I gonna change their minds? But the reality is, they're all worshiping, everybody. It's just a matter of saying, there's something better to worship, something more beautiful, more fulfilling to worship. Because he, into, into this, kind of into the heart of this city it were all these different competing beliefs and desires and gods and idols all competing for our attention right into the beauty and the creativity and the violence and destruction of the city God has sent us us his church, his people to reach this city, to love this city, to display to this city something better, a better way to live. 
And that's always been his plan. <laughs> right through the story of the Bible, it's always been God's plan to raise up a people, as we were talking about last week, to worship him and to lead others into worshiping him as well. To display his glory to a broken world. That's the role of the people of God, of the church, of us, is to display his glory, to reach out to people around us who don't know him and call them to him. And God didn't look at this broken city and say, well, this is, this is too hard. I need to raise up some kind of special missionary task force. I need to get my elite evangelists to come in. He said, no, this is, this is our job. This is the church's job. This is us. He's laid it at our feet and said, no, I've sent you to do this. Us, his people, his, his church. It's a... Uh, Dutch leader called Stefan Pasti helps lead another church here in the city. He said the church is a missionary, inviting, recruiting church, or she is no church at all. A writer called David Devonish, who wrote a book, What on Earth is the Church For? He said this is why the church is in the world, for mission. A mission to bring about the rule of God in the world, to start communities of God's people from all backgrounds in every people group, to serve the world through social action and in their everyday employment, and to extend this to every people group on earth. That's, that's our job. That's the DNA at the heart of the church. That's our mission, our calling, our purpose. is not just to be a holy huddle hidden away, but to take this good news that we've discovered and to take it to those around us who don't know him to make him known for who he is. And the midst, in the middle of this enchantment, to actually to come and to lift the spell. Sometimes people would think, well, we, we, we live in this uh, disenchanted world and the church is this, these people from, who kind of left over from this previous generation. Somehow a few of them are still around, but they're the ones under this trick under this illusion, this enchantment. But actually, it's, it's the other way around. We're the ones who come to bring reality, to lift the spell, to break the enchantment, to say, this is what life is really about. This is what liberty and freedom really looks like. This is how you find true joy, true life to the full. Even in the difficulty and the hardship of life, we don't come and say, life's now going to be perfect, because that's not true. But we say, in, in every battle and struggle and the ups and downs of life, there's a purpose in mind for all of us to worship him. And that's how you find your freedom and your joy and your liberty. And that's the role of the people of God. And to come back to that verse, Matthew 5, it says, we are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And what we get to do as the people of God is we get to demonstrate the character of God and his kingdom. As a people together, we get to display something beautiful of what Jesus is like. People are supposed to look at us, the church, and say, that's what Jesus is like. In how we love one another, how we care for one another, but how we love society, how we love our city, how we care for it. People are supposed to look at that and see something of Jesus 
in that. We're the light of the world. We're supposed to shine his light out. God's planted in the midst of a city that doesn't know him. God's planted us. Not just us, other churches as well that are here to love and reach this city. And he's going to plant more as well, I'm sure. But he's put us here. He's put this small seed in the ground. And he's growing it into something beautiful for his glory. And our, our mission is worked out primarily by, by living as the people of God. Not necessarily by going and doing lots of things and lots of activities and running lots of courses and programs, although they're often really helpful. But primarily it's as us as a people living as his people. <laughs> that people see how we, how we follow this book, what it says, how we live out this 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 beautiful uh, way of living that's here in the word of God, how we work this out in our lives, how we display the character of God. When we, when we refuse to worship all these other competing idols in our city, that, that makes people wake up. When you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to make that choice. I'm going to do something else with my time, with my money, with my relationships. I'm not going to talk about that person in that way. I'll talk about them in an honoring way, in a loving way. When we refuse to worship the other idols of our city, people are going to want to know, well, what do you worship then? <laughs> what is your life built around? If it's not built around these things, it's supposed to stand out. When, when we resist these idols, the spell that the city is under, it shines out. It proclaims something. It's this light into the darkness. And what I want to spend a little bit of time before we finish this morning is to look at some, some implications for us as a, as a church. Five practical things to kind of mark what we're like, the shape of us, who we are, what we do. Five things. And first of all, the first one is, uh, is not working. So we won't worry about it. The first one is engage. We're, we're to engage with our city. Hopefully that, that sounds kind of obvious. That, sounds, that should make sense. But often really in, in the history of the church, there are kind of two ways that the church tends to respond. Particularly in times, of, times when, a bit like our day today, when often we look at what people around us think what the media tells us, the kind of the zeitgeist, what society tells us to think, when we look at that and that feels so opposed to what we believe, there tend to be two ways the church in history will respond. Either it retreats away, it hides, it disappears, it goes out to the fringes, we'll all go and live on a farm, we'll put up a big fence, we'll have a great time together, um, we'll grow our own vegetables, make our own coffee, but we'll have as little contact with the outside world as we can in case we somehow get polluted. You know, we get, we get the virus, we get, we get the disease, we'll hide ourselves away, we, we retreat. It's one way the church will often respond. Another way is we'll, we'll take the opposite approach and we'll try and be relevant. We'll say, do you know what? We're, Everything we say and do, anything that people aren't going to like, we'll just 
either pretend it doesn't exist, that it's not in the Bible, or we'll just, we'll just rewrite it, we'll just get rid of those bits. We'll see what the, the world believes, and we'll just basically say the same thing, but we'll use nice Christian language, but it's just a kind of Christianized version of what the world thinks. We disappear into, into relevance. We basically abandon what we believe to embrace the world around us. So you have these two extremes. We either run and hide away because we don't want to change what we believe, or we decide, well, we, we, we're going to have to change what we believe to reach the world around us. Actually, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Early this year, we were working through the book of 1 Peter, um, and we did that for a reason, because in 1 Peter, it it's the, the letter that Peter writes to the church starts with this phrase, elect exiles, that we've been sent as the people of God into the world, but as exiles, as sent ones into the world. But actually, we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to become like the world. We're supposed to be distinctive, to have saltiness, to have flavor that's different from the world around us. We're supposed to be resilient, this absolute determination to follow the way of Jesus, to love him before anything else, but not in seclusion or isolation in retreat, but with a resilience, an irre irrepressible resilience that we're going to stay with faith, with belief. So that's an important distinctive of what we want to be as a church, a church that's resilient. We meet here in this building in the heart of the city and not in a village 50 miles away. Not that that's bad. If you want to reach a village 50 miles away, you need to be in the village 50 miles away. But if you want to reach Amsterdam, we need to be here in the city, in the heart of the city, to try and reach this city. But we're not going to change what we believe. We're not going to rewrite bits of the Bible or pretend they don't exist. We want to live our faith with a resilience and also, when it comes to engaging, it means that we're... The important thing to say is that we... Although I'm here speaking in English, and I'm not Dutch, I'm from England, and there's people in this congregation who are from all over the world, but we're not an expat church. We're not a church that just hides away just a bunch of English and Americans and South Africans and Scottish and Welsh people who just like to be in one of those company. We're not. We're not even really an international church made up of people from all over the world who are identities in the fact that we're international and diverse. We're, we're a church for Amsterdam, for, for this city, first and foremost. And that means that we will be international because we live in probably the most international city on the planet. 180 different nations here. 50% of the city aren't Dutch. So hopefully 50% of, of our church won't be Dutch but we're here to reach this city for Amsterdam. We're not an expat church. And that's important because I think to, to address those here who aren't Dutch, who've maybe moved here from another country, I think it's important that you think about how you're gonna live here in this city, even if you're only here for a few months, but maybe you'll be here for longer, but to think about what, what's my posture gonna be? How am I gonna engage in this city? Because you can just come and live as an expat, which basically means your, your primary identity is somewhere else. You're, you're, you're English, 
So that's, you're, you're basically going to stay English. You'll have English friends. You'll eat English food. You'll, you'll just be English but living somewhere else. And you don't really engage with the city because you're an expat. That's what your identity is. Or people tend to come as more like kind of nomads, kind of global nomads who just bounce around from place to place, from country to country, and never really feel at home anywhere. They just move from one place to the next. I'd encourage you to, to make this city your home, even if you're only just here for a little while, to not be an expat, but to be an Amsterdamer, to be at home here. And maybe God will call you to live here for more than just a few months or a few years, and I pray that he will. But even if you're just here for a short time, just say, no, I'm going to commit to this place. I'm not just going to come here. And, because if you've lived in this city for very long, you will know that one of the tensions, particularly at the moment, and it will become increasingly a tension, one of the tensions in our city is tourists, right? Because they walk in front of cycle paths. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they leave a mess everywhere. And they, they come for weekend breaks for a few weeks, a few days, and they come to consume from our city, um, and then they leave. And if you're a tourist here, you're very welcome. <laughs> Just don't walk in front of my bike, okay? But it's, it's something that people in, there's a conversation in our city at the moment about, well, how do we, how do, we do this? Because some tourists come and they want to you know, just enjoy the city, and some, they come and they, they want to make a mess. <laughs> and they just want to, they're not helpful. We won't go into that. But the thing is, if, if you're not careful, you can end up just living as a kind of extended tourist, right? That you just live here for weeks on weeks, months on months, years on years, really. And all you're doing all the time is just taking from the city, taking from it. And I would say, don't live like that. Love this city. Serve this city. Think about your, your posture. How are you going to live in this city? What's that going to look like for you? Because really, to, to reach this city, to be a resilient people, we, we're going to need some patience and some steadfastness. Most of the time, I think there's a... I don't know where it comes from, but there's a kind of leadership phrase, which is something like that. We, we overestimate what we can achieve in one year and underestimate what we can achieve in 10 years. And to build something in this city that really has an impact and serves the city is not going to happen in a few years, but might take decades and decades. And we need people that are going to stay and commit and be steadfast, be pillars here to build something mighty here. Joe and I, we, we got talking to a neighbor on our street this week who teaches at a school, uh, one of the schools our daughter has just started going to, and he's taught at that same school for 31 years. He went straight out of university, straight into this school, and he's taught at the same school for 31 years. I thought, wow, <laughs> our church needs some people like that that just stay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to live in that house, I'm going to commit myself to that community, to that workplace. And until God says otherwise, I'm, I'm here 100%. You think of all those lives that he's been able to, to influence over 31 years as a teacher. Probably thousands and thousands of children that he's been able to teach. And there might be just by you just putting yourself in one place and just sticking to that. 
at just serving over and over and over again, you could serve thousands of lives or hundreds, or it might even just be one or two. But sometimes to really influence one or two lives can take a really long time. It can take years of perseverance and love and steadfastness. So first of all, engage. Secondly, as a church, we're supposed to practice our faith, to, to work it out together what we believe. That's why we're relaunching our community groups in a few weeks' time, because we want to build, I guess the best way to describe them would be kind of countercultural communities of authentic Christianity, little beacons in the city that each one of them is a, is a light to the world. And in, in how that small group of people, maybe it's just 8, 10, 12 people, but how they work out how they love Jesus together and how they love one another and care for one another is supposed to be this little beacon of light shining out to the community around it. How we practice our, our faith. Because what we get to do is we get to display a kind of an Amsterdam 2.0, like a better version of the city. There's so many people in our city, we'll talk about this a bit more next week, so I won't go on too long, but so many people in our city are, are longing for friendship and relationship. One of the biggest epidemics in our city is loneliness, and people are looking for love. People, friends, Genuine friendship. Most people in our city probably have never had a real genuine friend. You know, the sort of friend that, that tells you when you're being an idiot in a loving way. Also called speaking the truth in love, right? Most people have never had a friend like that. A friend who will walk through them, walk with them even through the most difficult seasons of life. Even when they're being horrible, will stand by them. Most people have never known that sort of friendship. And yet we get to bring that to our city and display what it can look like. It's supposed to be this attractive thing that people see how we love each other, how we're faithful, how we forgive, how we accept people, how we, how we care for people, how we repent, how we're kind, how we're patient. People see that, the, the, the DNA of a community, they see it and it does something, it's irresistible. So we're supposed to practice, work out our faith together. And thirdly, we're to create. We're to create. That's one of the roles of the church in the city, is to be creative. Because often what we'll do is you'll see things in the world around you, in our culture, things that people say, things that people do, and you won't like it. And the temptation is, is just to critique those things, to, to pull those things down, to tear them down. And sometimes that's, that's the right thing for Christians to do, to stand up and say, that's wrong. No one else is saying it. We need to say that that's wrong. But actually, most of the time, the best way to respond when you see bits of culture that are bad is just to create something better instead, <laughs> just to build something more beautiful instead, more captivating and I'm not just talking to people who are kind of artists or creatives here in the city, but for each of you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your sphere of influence, if in your office, if you don't like the way that people talk about one another, then talk about people differently. 
If you don't like the, the kind of the environment, the culture in your office, then create a new one. <laughs> if you don't like how no one on your street knows each other, how all the neighbors just don't really seem to have any involvement in each other's lives, that most people don't even know each other's names, then change it. <laughs> Get to know them in lots of different ways, rather than just moaning about it, do something new. Create something beautiful. We get to be a creative community. You know, at the school gates, you, know, you, you get to be the, the warm, friendly parents. And that might sound really kind of just a surface thing, but it makes such a difference. People notice it, they really do. And sometimes you're just being yourself, you're not even trying to, you're just being you. But People will notice all the time how you are with your kids, how you talk to them, how you talk to other people, how you talk, how you talk about, about other people when they're not there. Particularly when people find out you're a Christian, they will, they will read all those things. They'll read you like a book. <laughs> and they'll, they'll be asking the question, is, is what, if they're a Christian, is that really true? And when they see it is, that's startling to people. It will affect them. And we get to take our passions and our hobbies and desires, all the things that God's given you, and it might even be things at the moment that maybe they're even idolatrous things, things that have kind of taken over, that you're so focused on this one thing that everything else has to get out of the way because you're, you're, you're consumed with that thing. Well, you can, you can redeem that desire. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, but God might want to take that and put it in its right place and say, actually, first of all, let's just remove that. Worship me first. But then he might want to take that gift he's given you and use it to bless the world around you, to create something beautiful. It might be, you know, for instance, music. It might be a, you're a wonderful musician, but it's become an idol in your life. It's become the thing that you're built around and it's just your focus, I'm going to do that thing, and anything else has to get out of the way. But maybe God wants to redeem that and make it something beautiful. It might be that he wants to call you to be a worship leader. I don't mean here on the stage, but to go into basically other temples, other places of worship in our city, the nightclubs and the bars and the gig venues, and play music that brings hope and light, that, that says something else, that has a different message to it. We get to create. Next of all, number four, we get to, we, this is a really important one. I could do a message just about this. Is we get to pray. And we get to do that this week on Wednesday and Friday. Come and join us and pray. Because as we talked about, not last week, but the week before, that it's, it's Jesus that builds his church. We're completely in his hands. But he calls us to pray, to seek him. And, and our prayer, it's not powerful because of who's praying. It's powerful because of who we pray to. So when we gather here on a Wednesday and, and, a, and a Friday, it's not, it's not going to be even more powerful just because there is a hundred of us compared to if there's just three of us. It's powerful because we're praying to God. We're coming to him. And I could tell you so many stories of how we've prayed for things in this church and God has answered in miraculous ways. If the fact that we're here in this building is an answer to prayer. I can remember numerous times of us being 
10 people in my apartment praying that one day God would give us a building and it sounded silly. Like, <laughs> there's just 10 of us, you know. We can barely afford lunch and we're praying for a building, right? But it wasn't that there was anything powerful about me or the 10 of us, but God's powerful. I could tell you so many other different answers to prayer, but that's one of the things that will always, always, always and must always be as distinctive of our church is that we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray when things are going well, when things are going horribly, that we keep seeking God. And then finally, the fifth kind of distinctive really is that we get to engage, practice, create, pray, but we get to tell a, a different story, a completely different story. We get to tell a different narrative to our world. We get to challenge all the assumptions of our city where they believe all sorts of different things. We get to come and tell a different way of living, a different story, something more beautiful and captivating, something more powerful and wonderful. Oh, oh great, this is all working, wonderful. Can you just flick on to the next slide? I didn't realize it was working. Here we go, let me read this. This is by an Austrian philosopher. He says, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story, one so inclusive that it gathers all the bits of our past and present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into our future so we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. If we could flip onto the next slide. A writer called Stephen Arm said, the gospel, the message of who Jesus is, what he's done, is the one story that can rewrite all the misdirected stories that our cities are telling. It is the way that worship is rightly reordered and the way in which worship becomes life-giving again. We get to just come and, and most of it will be not in the proclamation but in the living how we live we get to tell a different story and the story isn't I'm great or we're great it's that God's great it's not even that we love this city but the message we get to say to people is that no God loves this city he's passionate about this city he's formed it together he's drawn all these different peoples and nations people groups he's brought them all into this hub together because he wants them to know about him because he wants to do something in their lives. That's the, the very center of our mission, is to tell a completely different story, to proclaim the love of Jesus, to proclaim him, to introduce our city to him. Let me finish and read a verse from, it won't come up on the screen, but let me read this from John. I think I said it beginning as, as I was praying. It says, John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me pray. Jesus, 
That's, that's what we declare, that you've called us to be the light of the world, but because you're the light of the world. In the, in the darkness and the hopelessness, you bring refreshing, beautiful light. In all the scenarios where people think that they're happy, where they've been tricked into believing that life is okay, but really they're lost in darkness, Jesus, you can break in. You're the wonderful answer. You're the liberty that people need, the freedom people need, the love that people need. God, and we want our mission to be completely and utterly focused on you, living our own lives of worship and adoration to you, enjoying the beautiful grace that you've poured out on our lives. And we want to take that to our city, introduce people to you, introduce them to this wonderful, unconditional love that you offer. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Amen.